1: i'm adam mcgee and i'm andrew Snyder, and you're listening to captured and Celluloid on make time for this probably a part of the eurostep podcast network and the blue wire podcast family we're back to talk movies we talked about the sight and sound paul last week. It's our first movie episode in a while schedules of not being kind to us the world cup has been keeping us busy and all our bonus episodes here but we're back to uh to do something of a roundup of some of the movies that i guess we would have talked about maybe in their own episodes in recent weeks some things we liked and uh yeah we'll work through we'll work through four movies here in this episode and we'll get back to back to business for us at one of the most exciting times of the year so first and foremost andrew
2: how are you doing doing well um you know we're uh going fast and furious and uh you know that'll happen uh got to catch up on movies got to catch up on sports and at the end of the day uh just really have uh some productive conversations about the things that we love the most how are you though does anyone ever ask you how you are adam
1: yeah sometimes uh like on a podcast we just recorded, you're the host and in those cases someone does ask me how i am I'm, d- I'm doing well um i've seen quite a few movies recently not as many as at other times the world cup has been um certainly taking a chunk of my schedule up but i've seen some good things some interesting things some bad things also um we'll focus on a few of them here i think some other things i've seen recently will be upcoming episodes some notable films that will hit streaming hit netflix specifically for people within the next few weeks and have already either had or in the midst of their theatrical run but uh yeah, good time at the movies. I'm I'm very close to having seen the real heavy hitters. There's two or three things from 2022 I haven't seen. So I'm at the point in the year where I'm I guess starting to like form an opinion of what is the year. I I don't know if it's a great year. I think it's I saw a tweet um by the by the critic Robert Daniels the other day. And I was like, you know what? I need to hold on to that in my head because that is the truth. And it was along the lines of every year is a good year for movies if you watch a lot of movies. <laughs> like, if you watch a lot of new releases, there is good stuff made all around the world, all levels of budget, every single year. And if you're watching a lot of movies, you will find that stuff. If you're genuinely like open-minded and curious about it, you will find really good stuff. And no year will go by where you're like... As a bad year. There's a lot of stuff I like a lot. I think a, a top 10 will be very hard to cut down. There'll be a few things that miss out that will be tough exclusions uh, to really get into the reads. I don't know if, say, the 20 to 40, 20 to 50 range this year is as good as maybe what it was last year. I think, in hindsight, last year was possibly underrated. Some really, really special stuff top end, but... I see a lot of movies. So every year is a good movie year. where Where are you at? How do you feel? i I know there is some catch up to do. There's some years though where you're in a really tough spot at this time of year. How are you feeling as we're now in December and it's new year generally signals and you're really kicking into, okay, I've got X many films I've missed that I need to I need to see before the Oscars come around before we do our own end of year um best of list, which generally comes like March and April. We make sure we see everything that will go down in the history books as a 2022 movie. So at this point, how are you feeling about where you're at? How are you feeling about the movies you've seen collectively in a 2022 movie sense?
2: Uh, I think it's been a fine year. I, I don't necessarily think it's been a great year and I'm I wonder how I would like some of the ones that will make the, the top of my list, I, I wonder how that would compare um, to a different year. Because we're right now, um, I, I would just stand by the fact that I think the ones that are towards the top are, are great, not necessarily all-timer, but um, just something that would stand on its own in any year. And that the stuff towards the middle and towards the back half of, of lists and just things I've seen this year might not... Um, quite live up to to previous years. That being said, there is still a lot that I haven't seen. Obviously, some smaller movies like one that you'll have pretty high up on your list, and then we have something like Avatar: Way of the Water or whatever the hell it's called, and we've got Babylon coming down the line, which is which are two films that uh will at least play a role in forming opinions about an overall year. Uh for one way or the other um but yeah so kind of a a mixed bag for me i feel like i say this every year but it is true that if you if you see a lot of movies especially at the level that you do and to a degree at the level that i do you're going to come across for sure at the level you
1: do for sure don't under Uh, don't undermine yourself there i mean particularly by the time you do a lot of your catch-up you're fully in that category you're not going to miss anything major and i don't mean just major studio releases generally major international films major documentaries but the time we get to our lists you've usually been pretty comprehensive so sorry to cut across you but just yeah you for sure as well fit into that category
0: you just you are probably
1: the best spot where you get to dodge some of the really terrible stuff that i see
2: i do have a tendency to do that um Yeah, I'll be curious to see how I feel come February, March when I've got everything under my belt and I'm able to reflect on some of these end of year podcasts we've had in the past. We're really, really running through what our best of the best of the year was and where do I compare it to other years? Because I'm going to be honest with you, you get two or three years down the line and the movies that you think about and the movies that still live in your memory um, might change or they might be the same. I mean. A movie i still think about from years ago is portrait of a lady on fire that's now ending up on sight and sound list but for, for example something that i really liked in the moment in a few years ago in nomadland haven't really thought about that too often so it's it's funny how something can wash over you in the moment and you have a really uh interesting experience seeing it in the time and then as time fades it kind of fades from your memory like something that and that i'm i'm doing that full uh, discourse with myself, even in less than a year. Think of something like the Northmen, which I had a really strong reaction to, and it's just like not aging as well in my mind. And I wonder if I watch it tomorrow, if I would say, "Oh no, this, this is this doesn't come close to the top, top of my list now."
1: So I, I like the it's a process. Do, do you want? Do you want to know where the Northmen is on my constantly evolving uh, list for the year? What number it's at right now? Can I guess? You guess, yeah. 14. 27. Okay. So right now it's not looking good for the Norton to make by. I always, I cut it off at 30 and that will be on my letterbox for no one but me, really. But uh for the record, it will be there. If that was my 30 and I'll rewatch it between now and then. Maybe it rises again. Uh, I I like the Norton, but that's a film. I, I think the Noma Point is actually a really good one. And that is one that... I had that experience happen that year between my first viewing and additional viewings undoubtedly a really good movie. I do think there are some things similar this year. Um, I know like if I look back to last year, to be clear, these are not films that everyone's like, Oh, what an all time film, but they're films that I really, really loved. Come on, come on. Uh, Worst person in the world. Mr. Bachman and his class, which available in the U.S. Finally, it appeared on AO Scott's 2022 New York Times top 10 list. So, you know, if you didn't take it from me many months ago, I know, you know, people come to my list first and I had it in 2021. But it's on AO Scott's New York Times is go check it out. It's on Mubi. Um, but yeah, those films, Procession, Souvenir Part 2, French Dispatch, Drive My Car, Power to Dog, Licorice Pizza, The Card Counter. Stuff like A Hero and Wheel of Fortune and Fantasy. Limbo, Petite Maman, Azor, Dune, Bergman Island, Parallel Motors. Like they're all like that's you're down to like 20. And I think that's that's some depth. There are a lot of films I like this year where we'll get it's not like it's terrible beyond the top 10. As I said, I already would have few to see tough, tough cuts right around the 10 mark. Um, but I i don't know if there is the one film yet where I'm like, okay, well that's that's the film that's really gonna set this year apart. I know the films I love and I'll remember from this year, but in some other years I feel like there's something that fits that bill, but it also kind of transcends that in one way or another. Don't know if it will happen yet, but we'll see. Um interesting stuff to talk about and think about as we reach this kind of juncture in the year, and as we do look movies are coming ticking fast you're into the time of year um, and really honestly moving past it recent history has suggested that if you are serious about wanting to win an oscar uh, wanting to be a factor in an awards race your movie should be out by now there are notable films that that is not the case for avatar the way of water babylon i think being two real kind of headline examples of that there are others being released in the U.S. that have not made it to my part of the world yet. The fable um, being probably the most notable of those. But that means that every week right now two, three, four pretty notable heavy-hitting movies. And we're kind of going to talk about some of those, but I, I do think it's more of a mix too. Um, We've got a couple of pretty proven now heavyweight filmmakers. We've got a uh, directorial debut that is probably going to factor into the next few months in a whole bunch of ways and if people haven't seen it or heard about it already if they're into movies I'd find it hard to believe if they haven't but they certainly will from now on um, and another film a little smaller I really feel like this one went under the radar and I like it a lot and it's the documentary directed by someone very notable we'll get to all of that very very shortly I'll let you Pick Andrew, you know the four films that we're bringing to the table here. Where would you like us
2: to start? Uh, I think we, I think we start aggressive. Aggressive. Yeah, so I think you know what I mean when I say that.
1: Do you mean Bones and All by
2: Luca Guadagnino? I, sh- I sure do. Uh, Luca Guadagnino was. A director we spoke about on a previous iteration of this podcast because I, we both, I think, really liked uh, Call Me By Your Name, mm-hmm. uh, which was the Italian setting, uh, not Italian, but like in Italy, uh, love story starring Timothy Chalamet and Army Hammer. Uh, Michael Stuhlbarg's Oscar reel from uh, that movie uh, will live with me forever. Uh, Luca is. Teaming back up with Timothy Chalamet to make a movie about uh cannibals. It's like uh it's like Jack Kerouac's cannibals is basically <laughs> the way I'll describe this movie. And I'll turn it's it over like, to you It's here like in a the
1: post, it's like the post Call Me by Your Name, Discourse has Eaten Itself, one could say.
2: Right. i produced yeah. this movie. Yes. So starring Taylor Russell, uh as his, as, and Timothy Chalamet as a love interest. Mark Rylance is having a real good time. Andre Holland's in it briefly. Uh, Michael Stuhlbarg is back in a much different way than he was in Call Me By Your Name. Oscar Real, baby. Got, yeah, there's more Oscar Reals, but uh, it's, it, it, it might really, relate it's adam's oscar reel featuring his favorite needle drops of the year when a joy division song comes in um and then randomly david gordon green is just there for some reason and maybe the most peculiar peculiar uh, why can't i speak uh, role i didn't i, I in the whole movie.
1: completely missed that that's who that was that is um michael stuhlberg's companion on the road yes. we'll
2: say yeah didn't notice that um, at all but you're right So we won't give too much about the plot, but it's cannibalistic love story is the best way to describe it. And I was in. I think there's some really good filmmaking in this movie. I think uh, it really knows what it is. You can say that about a lot of movies, but it doesn't try to be something it's not. It steers all the way into the absurdity and the visceral nature of its subject matter, and it treats it with there's the absurdity there, but it treats it with a degree of seriousness as well. That makes it twice as horrifying. And it's just like creates its own universe of something that exists. I think Taylor Russell gives a really good performance as kind of the emotional center of the film, because even though she's part of this world, she's kind of being reintroduced to it, uh, because of her own memory and her own kind of her father trying to help her reject, uh, this particular way of life. I love Chalamet and the choices that he makes as an actor. I mean, he, he, you're doing, you do Dune one and Dune two. You're just like in a mega big Dune movie with Denny Villeneuve. And then you're also making this cannibal movie with the guy you made call me by your name with, and you're singing, uh, lick it up by kiss, uh, with, with your shirt off and, after you've just, like, devoured a human being. Like, there's a lot going on in this movie, and I think it's not perfect. There are some moments um that, you know, work less well than others, and, like, you really have to be all in on what's, what Mark Rylance is doing, or you might think this is the dumbest movie you've ever seen in your life, but I think it all works together really well, and the viewing experience itself is something that I think is worth your time just because of how chaotic it feels at the time you're gonna you're gonna uh, uh squint your eyes and uh, and avert your game it's a very crunchy screen. movie like it is it is crunchy uh, visually and <laughs> like uh show show tell adam show tell adam that's what movies are and it shows that it tells visually and uh auditorily i don't know what the right word is but bones and off what a film
1: uh, there, there is someone you neglected to name in the cast there. Uh, oh. I, I wonder has it flown under your radar to who exactly that is.
2: Oh no, um, Suspiria. Um, correct, correct. Jessica, I was just double, Jessica Harper. Yes,
1: I was just double checking that you were aware of that because yeah, that's a
2: when when she opened the door, I was like, Sally Field got old, and I was like, oh no, that's not who that is.
1: <laughs> no, uh, Jessica Harper does appear in here. Um, of course, Luca Godinez previous film was his remake of Suspiria um, so that's that's an interesting one too I really like this movie, I think I like this movie a lot more than the critical consensus is. It feels a little lost in the shuffle uh, I think there's been a lot of interesting writing around this film uh, including from uh, legendary filmmaker John Waters who always releases his own top 10 list of a year and the question I believe he asked on your kind of talking about Timothy Chalamet's performances and the kind of interesting characters, uh, John Water said, Is there such a thing as a Butch Twink? Yes, there is. And that, that was how he describes Timothy Chalamet in this movie. Um, Taylor Russell is someone who really kind of jumped off the screen to me when I, when I saw waves. I can't think of a whole lot I've seen her in since. Very well cast here, her and Chalamet develop, I think, what's like a fitting chemistry. It's kind of off, but there's just enough there that I think it works for, one, what the characters are going through, two, how they're behaving. Um, Mark Rylance is doing the thing. He's either like the best, quietest, most subtle actor on the planet he he's dialed all the way up and it's like, it's going to make or break the movie for everyone who watches it. I think some people might just tap out. Like this is in the vein of his don't look up performance. Like he's playing those level of notes. When I say that, I mean, he's playing the notes very loudly and I I find that really interesting because nothing about him comes across as the kind of guy to do this, but this is becoming increasingly more of his career. Like he wins the Oscar for Bridge of Spies. And then he just becomes like really zany. I mean, really zany character actor. Didn't see that particular development coming for him. But he does it very, very well. Did you have something on Rylance there?
2: Yeah, and I think the first thing I said to whoever I've talked about this movie about to the first time was... I want to, like, write Mark Rylance a letter or ask him a question, and I don't mean this in a pejorative way. I don't know how I mean it. Why are you doing this? <laughs> I just have questions, and I just want to know why, because to everything you just said is so true. And, like, if someone watches this movie, I'm not going to recommend this movie to people because most of the people in my life Because it would upset them? Is uh, that— yeah, I, I or can they see... think you're
1: very strange. They'd be concerned about your alarms, maybe. Is no,
2: that... not 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 necessarily that, just because I think they go, why the fuck did you send me to this nonsense? That was terrible. But because the Marker Islands hanging over it all is going to rub some people the wrong way. And, you know, I think that's short sighted. I think you just need to you need to understand that whatever this world or this universe is in 1980s, middle America uh is it basically feels like a different universe and you just need to embrace it all the way that being said it is still mostly set in our universe because i got to see chalamet sing kiss and george Strait's at amarillo by morning so you know glad that they had that dichotomy
1: i find it interesting that you're saying that i understand why i there's people in my life i'd recommend this to and there's certainly people in my life i wouldn't i do kind of feel like it's sneakily commercial and that did not bear out. Like, people did not go to see this movie. It grossed $13 million at the box office. It lost money. Like, I think Rylance is doing a very commercial movie performance. Uh, the this Dr. Sleep, the Mike Flanagan Shining spin-off, sequel film thing. His performance reminded me of something that kind of would have fit in in that movie. I don't I don't know it like it works for me here I had a lot of fun with it and I think you just got to have fun with the movie I don't think the movie like for as much as there's plenty of kind of art in the filmmaking I don't think it's successfully artsy am I just am I so lost am I so oblivious to that I watch things that are so far beyond that that I'm way off the mark there or like, I, I kind of think this is a movie that was quite cleverly designed and maybe hasn't, for whatever reason, been able to capitalize on like, oh, come see the new Timothy Chalamet movie. And yeah, it's a cannibal movie. It's kind of a, we could call it a vampire movie, I think would be a way, you know, if you wanted to call it a vampire movie, I think you'd get more people on board and really, you know, ultimately, what's the difference? I don't know. Maybe I'm way wide of the mark on that. But I, I didn't feel there was anything about the filmmaking that made it inaccessible to a certain kind of audience member and that pushed it kind of too far. I think there's certainly very clear elements of just like standard coming-of-age filmmaking. They're plain to see they're executed at a very high level. It looks absolutely beautiful, and it continues in a tradition that plenty of people have remarked upon over the years that it's often some of the best american road movies like in terms of the sprawl and the expanse of america tends to be made by european filmmakers and um, when there's paris texas being one of my all-time favorite films and probably the greatest example of that i do think luca guadagnino is can kind of be added to that lineage with this film like the way it captures the midwest the way he views the, the midwest feels much more like I I think there's something really exotic about that part of the U S to European filmmakers who come and just see this open space and the nothingness. And they imagine it in a way that's much more romantic than the rest of the country does in America where it's like, yeah, okay. What's really going on in in insert state here? You know, um, I, I think that's interesting. And I think it, really as it kind of jumps from state to state and we join the characters on that journey. I think there's, there's something really kind of well captured there. And that gives a, a beautiful backdrop, but also something that feels like a real essence to someone like me, which is not important in terms of I'm not actually from there, but capturing an audience, you want it to feel real, but you also want it to feel somewhat romantic Uh, The music is phenomenal. Score by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. Are there better composers working right now? There aren't too many, if there are. And yes, Andrew referenced it. I think it's my favorite needle drop of the year so far. There is just a really great piece of sound editing. Like, on top of me loving the song, there's just a brilliant piece of sound editing where we go from... Uh, very kind of disquieting, unsettling, Michael Stuhlbarg running through the dark out of a wooded area, screaming at the top of his voice, and that the audio of it is just, it meshes like a perfect transition into Joy Division's atmosphere, which is just an amazing, amazing song that has a real kind of quiet power that perfectly complements a lot of what this movie's doing. I like it a lot. I think it's really good. Uh I'm gonna I'm just gonna come out and recommend it. I'm gonna encourage people to go beyond their comfort zone and like see it and just kind of watch it with an open mind and see what they think. Because I I do think there's something kind of sneakily accessible here that we could put people off. If you are, you know, not someone who can deal with some pretty gory stuff in your movies. But yeah, it's not for you. I mean, this is a film that certainly goes for it more than I necessarily expected, even.
2: Uh, also, just the uh, the restraint to not include a fine Young Cannibals song, despite the time period. You know, well done. They didn't want to have it too much on the nose. Also, uh, a good uh, New Order needle drop as well. R.I.P. and Curtis. Uh, because that's why that band exists, I think. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think the realism of the horror elements in a lot of horror films, there's a degree of like, this can never happen. This is never real kind of a thing, but the goriness in terms of, I mean, there are some tough visuals that are going to really stick with you, but yeah, watch it, give it a shot, find us and tell us what you thought about it and, uh, you know, go to movies. But it's on it's on uh, video on demand now, by the way, as of December 13th, according to it Wikipedia. It is? According to Wikipedia. What is, what is going on? What, are, probably,
1: like, every movie we're going to talk about here is now available at home uh, because we've had a slight holdup of it. It's wild to me, completely wild. Like, sure, it's great in one sense, but it's also, it's not great because they don't make their money back this way. The big thing with things going to VOD in two weeks that I don't think they grasp... For example, if there's a notable release that I'm having to wait in another part of the world till February for, and it goes out in theaters in the US in November, and it's on VOD two weeks later, I did the studios not realize what on VOD means. On VOD means is widely available for pirating. Like <laughs> you're you're not treating movie fans, the people who are prepared to pay for your movies in the way you should this drives me crazy with theatrical windowing i'm the person who goes and sees three and four things i want to see everything give it to me as soon as possible i will be there i will buy a ticket and then you've got some of these studios are like yeah we'll just show it in the theater oh look it bombed wonder why that is on vod two weeks later and then someone like me is like well i want to pay to see this film i want to pay to support the people who made it, support the movie theaters that I like to go and see, all of that stuff. And you're just, you're giving me two fingers along with everyone else, and you're being like, oh, well, that's tough. You're waiting until then, and it's just going to be pirated left, right, and center. I, That's what VOD means. Sure, it's a revenue stream, but it is also the moment where the film is out in the open, and that's what happens. It's when you concede that you're going to lose a lot of revenue. Find of wild. Anyway, that's a side tangent. But I, I do just like that speed of turnaround. There is no way they're coming close to maximizing their money. I get some of the reasons for shorter windows. The old windows were too long. But that kind of turnaround, there is no logic to it. Two weeks. People can be busy. People can want to go and see something. Be like, oh, we'll probably be there next week. And it's gone. And all of a sudden, you're asking them for $20 a home. Or they can be like... you know, I know a way where I can get this for nothing. What are you doing, studios? (laughs) Like, this is insane. Anyway.
0: We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast.
2: Where will we go next, Andrew? Um, where do you want to go? It's been a, a while now since we saw each of these. Do you wanna, do you wanna talk about a film featuring uh, your countrymen?
1: Sure. Okay. Let's do After Sun. After Sun is the directorial debut of Charlotte Wells, uh, Sorry, Paul Maskell. which just. I uh, just want to make the note it's Paul Mescal, is how he says his name. I'm hearing a lot of Mescal from the US. I understand where people see that and they're like, oh, Mescal. I can assure you, no one in Ireland has the surname Mescal uh, pronounced like that. So, Paul Mescal, Frankie Corio, young star in this movie who goes a long way towards stealing the show, too. Um, It is an indie drama released by A24. About a father and his young daughter. I believe she's about 10, 12, maybe 12. Seems about right, probably for age range in the movie. Who go on holidays to a European resort. I believe they go to Turkey on uh, the kind of package holiday that maybe we'll give some context and we'll talk through with you. This is, This is very common. This is like whether it's not sorry Turkey, but lots of islands around Spain, um, for British holiday makers, for people from Ireland, these kind of holidays, like to a resort where there's like events, really cheesy events put on, um, like people doing the macarena on stage and all that. We have of this like this is, this is kind of something that very familiar in this part of the world, um, so this is a father and daughter. Clearly, the mother and father are not together anymore. Paul Meskel doesn't necessarily see Frankie Corio's character very often. It becomes quickly apparent to us. So there's something of a reconnection. There's something of a trying to build a really meaningful bond that will last a lifetime, to forge memories, a real willingness to give the best possible holiday experience, to do everything you can to make it right. And then with that, there's also an undercurrent of, I don't know, trying to suppress everything that may be going on in his own life and everything he's battling with because he wants to be the best dad he can be because he wants things to be the best they possibly could be. And what what I'll say on this, I know this is a film that you really responded to, so I'll give you um, a little bit extra space to talk on it in a second. What really struck me is the filmmaking here, which is probably not a surprise to anyone who listens to me talk about movies. But I do think there's some very bold stuff going on here. It is one of the best uses of digital video, of like camcorder footage, I have seen, certainly in a very long time. I don't know why this is not something that we see more often in terms of like period pieces made, whether it is from any time, I guess, from mid 90s true to mid 2000s um there's something very ephemeral about the kind of image that that kind of grainy digital camcorder image you could you could go back even further too i suppose there's something there that just it's so evocative it really has a texture it really has a feeling of you're taking a trip back in time it has the qualities of like a grain on film stock, but it's it's so much louder in some ways. It's so much sharper. It's so clearly a fixture of the past and also so jarringly disconnected to what digital video already looks like. And within the kind of larger structure of what Charlotte Wells is doing with this film and how she's presenting... And the core ideas, in terms of really, I guess, what's kind of bedded into the screenplay, and some of the the motifs and different shots and flashes we see visually, it's just it's genius. It's used so well, so seamlessly. And whether it is that we're just getting these kind of shots in, interspersed that are camcorder footage, or when we're actually seeing the process of those moments being captured. Uh it's a really, really smart, nuanced, delicate, heartbreaking movie. Like it packs a punch that's you're gonna you're gonna feel it kind of hit you in the solar plexus. It will take the wind out of you. It's immaculately performed. Paul Meskel is really, really great. I think we did a, a normal people pod, a, I think it was a Lenny Abramson normal people pod. I, I remember talking about him and coming out of that series, I thought he was very good. I wasn't fully sold on him, though, I think, in the way that a lot of the world were. Like, clearly, there was all the, like, Connell's Chain stuff, and he was, like, he was a star. Like, he was a famous person. But I, I wasn't sure, like, is he is he an actor? Like, is he a great actor? Um, If anything, Daisy Edgar Jones was the person I was more convinced of as an actor coming out of that it's even interesting to look at how their careers have gone respectively since that, even the year they're having and some of the choices they're making. Paul Mescal has really leaned into, I am making ultra smart, diligent choices. I'm chasing the most interesting parts and he's working on a much smaller scale, but he seems like someone who is going to have his pick of basically the best of those movies now for the foreseeable future. He is really, really good. Really, really good. Um, I would be shocked if when all said and done, he's not Oscar nomination good for this film. And I don't think this is a film that's going to get a whole bunch of nominations. I think it will probably realistically get one, but I do think that could be best actor for him. And as I mentioned earlier, like can't cross over Frankie Coriogh is a really, really great performance. And that is obviously just as important to the movie anchors it, but there's a real energy and verve to her performance And the chemistry between the two of them is believable. And the movie hangs on that. It hangs on the pain that Paul Maskell kind of conveys in his performance. But also, it's the love. It's that feeling between the two of them that whatever has gone on to bring them to the point they're in their life, what the relationship is, both of them want it to be the best it can be. Uh, Just kind of good intentions all around. And yeah, it's just a very, very strong film really really impressed by
2: it yeah I had uh, I think I was talking to my brother and he would not seen it yet but one of his movie goer friends didn't like it and they described it as um, watching somebody else's home movies and to I actually agree with that statement to a degree but I think it's a feature rather than a bug sure. and it's And for me, it feels also what's not interesting about that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know this person's name, so I won't slander them. But (laughs) um, uh, for me, it feels like living in someone's memory. And they do that via the filmmaking, obviously, that you just described in the the bold visual risks and swings that uh, you talk about really appealing to you. And then for me, obviously, the these the thematic nature and just the heartbreaking aspects or the story are, are something that, that's going to hook me in. There was something that I talked about um, that I like so much about Minari, which is people fully realizing after time, and especially when you grow up and you're no longer in those moments, being able to recognize your parent as a fully formed human being and not just the person that that gave you life and put you into the world they have their own problems and you see through the the whole film the struggle for connection and to um and to have this vacation be something that will be memorable for the right reasons and not for the wrong reasons and there's so much uh clear just pain that he's going through at the time it uh, it's he's clearly on the end of this relationship where I I think he's supposed to be in his late twenties or early thirties or or whatever it may be. So he had a, had a kid at a, at a young age. It didn't work out with uh, her mother. And then he's the one on the other side of it, not getting his life together. I mean, we see him in a, in a cast that we assume is like, what, what was, I don't know if it's ever explained, but you, you see some of his behaviors and his drinking and like his just, wanting to be out doing something. Seems like a a
1: likely lad would be a a phrase that probably means nothing to you but comes to mind for uh, but like someone who maybe like 90% of the time he's got it all under control but this thing is just there under the surface and when he lets go he lets go and things really really kind of get out of control from
2: there And it's clear, just on the whole, um, he's not equipped to be a parent, and that's clear. And he has shame about that. Do you you think so about that? Do you think so though? Yeah, I have. Or he doesn't have the ability to. I mean, he's like going out and like getting drunk in the water and leaving her off with with people where anything could have happened. And I just think like he's not up for it.
1: I so he, I disagree. He... I disagree very strongly with that. I have to say, and I know oh. you're not saying that you you really like the film because I, I do think. I think like he is a very the outline of a very good parent in a lot of really important ways that not everyone can do. Like he's very, very emotionally present, and open, and attentive and diligent and I, what i took part of that as that's kind of an element of i don't know there is as you mentioned one the age that it seems like he became a father which part of this could be someone who lost part of their youth and is still chasing something or is discontent with that but the other part i i kind of felt was if things have worked out differently and he was still with Um still with Sophie's mother, like I I think he's a really good dad in that kind of setting, but it's there's there's stuff he's grappling with that's tied to it all. Like I I I I do think there there's you're not wrong. Like I know the specific instance you're talking about, and that's not inaccurate, but I I don't think that shapes my overall view of him as a father within the film. I, I think on the whole, you see someone who really really cares and is dedicated to doing what is best for his child but for whatever reasons and there's a lot that's unsaid in the film there's probably a lot we could speculate but we're not going to go full spoilers too and i don't even know how much has been revealed in terms of charlotte wells personally I've, i look to do some reading and I, there's three parts of that she's keeping to herself as she should, honestly. Like, that's it's not really anyone else's business. It's the film, and the film's out there for everyone to see as a movie. They don't have to take from it exactly what it speaks to in her life. But it is autobiographical. We know that much. And I do think it's a very loving portrait of a father who may be an imperfect father, but he's entirely well intentioned. He wants to be the best father. For whatever reason, there are things maybe stopping that but that that's my read on it that's just where i'd counter a rare chance for us to disagree on something on the podcast but i i do think i read the kind of representation of that character a little bit differently to you
2: well i i don't think you do i think we're on the same page but i so the the, him in the moment when he's with her and when he's being able to be present and have the ability to be a parent and connect with her and like express that love in the quiet ways that he's able to. There's a a sense hanging over the film, obviously of, and I say this in the baseball podcast a lot, but availability being the best ability. And I think it's not necessarily that like one-on-one is he capable of being a good father because we see the moments where he is like when they're, you know, dancing or going on, trips or whatever it may be there are these nice sweet moments of connection but then i i think just the things they overhanging in his life that we don't get to see and i think that's one of the one of the impactful things about this film, it's just like clear, whatever's happening when they're not together. And when she's out with her mom, he can't get his life together. He talks about starting the business with that guy or whatever, and you're going to have your own room now and things are going to be different. And it's just like the resigned nature of the way he's given those line readings. Another great work from Paul Meskel. Did I say it right? Yeah. Like really quickly. I, I've Paul never Meskell.
1: heard you. um well, it's just Mescal. There's no, it's not, there's not a, prolonged it's not an a h sound it's it's mescal
2: yeah and uh i don't know there's just like a a resigned defeat in some of these line readings uh or like when he's on the phone with uh her mother and just the nature of those conversations i think he's but that's that's just even a, a loving
1: that's a loving relationship still like there's, obviously there's a lot we who... can't parse out no no i know you're not. right but yeah, I, yeah. I do, like, I think all of those, like, when you even talk about availability, like, part of that is your, the focus on him as a father and in those moments when he's there and not there. I do think part of the film, though, is an attempt to, as much as she possibly can, to dig into the fact that him not necessarily being present for her is not even a reflection of the father-daughter I think... I, th- I think he... In his own life, in his own mental health, completely detached from his daughter, he may just be a person who has a problem being present at all times and being in the moment and putting himself in the best place to succeed and to be happy. I think that's probably part of it there.
2: Uh, And I think where we get to in the end of the film, especially because this is and I won't spoil anything as reflection, wherever they are in their relationship now or whatever has happened, I think the film and viewing it th- through the memory and, and just like almost like watching herself, watch him to a degree um, through this is a sense of forgiveness and understanding about whatever shortcomings he did have as a father, or whatever flaws were there, you know, there, she's experiencing some empathy and some forgiveness at the end of the day there and recognizing the full package, the good and the bad. And, and I mean, that's what it is for any, uh, Human being, we've we've got our positives, we've got our flaws, and especially, I mean, it's a very nuanced portrayal of that father daughter relationship and some of like his strengths and, and weaknesses, and obviously the the speculation um, will be ended as soon as we do some uh, research on Charlotte Wells and get an idea of how no, autobiographical I, I, this was.
1: No, it is it's it's autobiographical, but I I do think there's a lot that she's not disclosing because obviously it's yeah it's it's about as personal as i've seen a film honestly like people make autobiographical films and they change names or other films we'll talk about in probably the weeks and months ahead where this stuff happens but this is this is getting at something that feels deeper that honestly feels darker in some ways too um and yeah maybe part of it is like filmmaking as therapy but it's a real effort to understand and I, I think beyond that it gets to something just in the dynamics of a parent child relationship. Like I I don't think someone has to have gone through life like this to relate to it either. I think it's there's something quite just primal natural there, um, and that's kind of carried true by how believable how real the relationship feels uh, between Paul Mescal and Frankie Corio.
2: And it does feel so real because you have to. At the Paul Mescal's performance is so layered and nuanced because he has to have those moments where he's able to express that love and connection, and then he also has to just communicate that detachment and just the, I mean, whatever he's doing the the yoga, or the tai chi, or whatever it is, and like it it he it just seems like it's so hard for him to wake up every day for whatever reason, and we don't know why, and just like the the nature of getting through the day is is tough for him and then to add that into okay you have a week where you're responsible for this human being and like you love them and sometimes you know you know how to show that and you know how to say it and then sometimes you just have to withdraw yourself for whatever is going on in your own mind or in your life I don't know it's it's a very powerful film. I think you're going to be just like devastated at the end of it. If you go and watch it. I mean, I was just sitting in the chair, just being washed over what I just taken in. And I think from that moment, I immediately declared it my favorite of the year. It's going to be something that on a rewatch, I think will be interesting to see how it stands up. It's still in my local theater. I could pop out of here after this recording and go see it again, Adam, if I wanted to, but, um, it's holding very yeah.
1: strong here as well for what's an independent movie. There are probably different reasons for that, that being that Paul Mescal is in it and <laughs> not unusual for prominent films with uh, Irish actors to maybe hold a little bit better here. But that seems to be something just generally kind of around the world. I think I saw this. I could be wrong, but I do think there is an A24 screening room, which is their kind of live at home experience very soon for this for, for anyone who hasn't seen it or if it's not playing near them um in the us a24 screening room watch out for that i do think that's coming up pretty soon uh, for anyone who wants to see it at home but it's a it's a really really good film that i actually i like and appreciate even more just for this brief pretty brief conversation we've had like i it's it's got real substance to it i think in a year where i don't know if that's necessarily true for everything and even some of the better films um something it's something i'm kind of grappling with when i'm thinking about what are the best films and it's like okay what what is that what do what what purpose should it serve like is it engaging my brain is it engaging my eyes is it and just switching all of that off like there's a real kind of interesting mix of things that i think are among the best of the year in a whole variety of categories um this very much engages with your heart so yeah very strong recommendation uh let's let's do armageddon time a memory piece and an autobiographical piece in its own right so worth going there um james gray is at this point one of the most significant like working american filmmakers in terms of acclaim i think in terms of where his reputation is at with actors he's an interesting filmmaker though in terms of the projects he's picked he's had his own issues with kind of wrangling with studios for control uh he's someone that i've had a mixed relationship with some of his movies uh i i feel like one that really kind of opened up um a wider and more mainstream audience for him, that got quite a kind of big reaction at the time i felt like was the lost city of z a film i just did not respond to at all just not at all um i like that Astra quite a lot his most recent film before this but one that I don't know how happy he is, but we're finished after some studio interference. And after seeing Armageddon time, I went back and I checked out some stuff I hadn't seen before. I've watched Beyond the Night, which is very good. Uh, I watched Two Lovers, which is great. Absolutely great. The Immigrant, also great. Uh, He is a very talented filmmaker, a very interesting filmmaker, someone who, throughout the vast majority of his career and certainly we'll say his first five films very clear sense of place rooted to new york maybe as new york a filmmaker as there is right now like that's the kind of reputation that obviously someone like scorsese's had before that and then i think the safties kind of carry that for a lot of people but there's there's something more rooted to various different elements of what makes up New York rather than just, oh, this is a New York energy. My film is made with a New York energy, which I'm saying in a way that sounds really sneering. I don't mean that because I like films that do that. Um, Uncle Gems being an example of that. But I do think James Gray's kind of interested in peeling back the layers of the onion that is New York. And he does that in Armageddon time. I think the interesting effect. I quite like this film. I went into it probably more primed than you were. I don't know how aware you were of. One a lot of the glowing. Like adulation that accompanied some of the early screenings of this. A lot of critics being like this is the best film of the year. This is absolutely show-stopping. Um, that was countered with a lot of critics pushing back against it and it being criticized in particular for its use of race and how it portrays that. And I guess how that spun within the family dynamic and within James Gray telling this story through his own prism, what does it say about him? How is he using race relations and a black childhood friend in the story? How does that all factor in and what is it saying within the, the purpose of the film, or I think in a lot of cases, what is it not saying was part of the criticism. I was primed for all of that, and I overall I just thought, no, this is very good. Uh, where were you going into this? You knew I'd seen it. I think I saw this before you. Um, I don't yeah, even I know that, how much I, I told you. Did you know any of that stuff? Like, had you
2: no, I knew nothing. I didn't even know what it was about. Okay.
1: For me. I'll give I'll give my take on it generally. What I liked about it, I didn't quite see a lot of the criticism because what I think is most interesting about it is this being an autobiographical movie, and it's not like people are inferring that James Gray has been out and talking very openly about it and how seeing his childhood home, showing his kids where he once lived sparked this and I, it's not flattering to him at all in a way that I feel like is knowingly not flattering to him in a way where he is being like pretty hard on himself, whether that's deserved or it's not. Like he's, I don't think he's giving himself a free pass here or giving his family a free pass or giving the social circles that they were in. And I, I think that's being a bit abrasive for people. I think the movie is a bit abrasive because you're kind of, I don't know if you're someone who goes into a movie and you're looking for like comfortable (laughs) strong moral standing I think this is a tough movie because there's a lot of things going on and part of me feels that's a very honest appraisal like there are worse versions of this movie that I think would make the James Grey character Paul um, out to be much more of a hero. I would manipulate the story in ways that I think are much less ambiguous, and uh, gloss over some of the things that I do think are left there in kind of an ugly way that I think people have interpreted one way. But I, I do think part it, like I think people are right to criticize and be like, oh, well, this is clearly you know this is not good. This is, but I, I think there's intent to why that's in there. I think he's being very honest, very open. Has reached an age where he is thinking about his life, his family, the attitudes of the people around him, the world he grew up in, what that came to give birth to in indirect ways, but in the world we live in now and in recent years, certainly an element at play in this film. I don't think it's the most gripping film. It's not my best film of the year, but I I did I did respond to that in that I found it interesting. Like I I do think he's taking a swing here that he's maybe not getting the credit for, but it's kind of like I don't know he's dragging himself over to Coles at some points in the movie. Did did you find that? Do you feel that? Do you, do you get what I'm saying there? Like, I, to be clear, I, there is one character. <clears throat> if you want to find like the the warm hearted moral core of the film. It's Anthony Hopkins' character, the grandfather character, which is like I, I, the thing probably only works because that character is there because it would be so cold, so hard to find any connection to without that. And I think really hard even to redeem the Paul character. But everything around that to me is kind of interestingly askew in a moral sense.
2: Yeah, I, I, uh, well, this was pretty good like i it did not blow me away uh to your point i did not find it to be the most gripping film i've ever seen uh holding intention and entertainment value i think could be a problem for some people but i liked it i did like it and i think that anthony hopkins speech in the middle of the film where he is being that moral center and just like providing the idealistic view of how you should Paul should be approaching his life and a situation. I think that's supposed to be juxtaposed with the ultimate result and the ultimate deci- decisions he makes or doesn't make uh, when it comes to, you know, the injustices he's seeing go on around him. I think that's the entire point as, as self-reflecting and feeling ashamed or complicit in like just accepting his own privilege and not using it as a bigger platform. I think to your point I don't think it's moralizing or talking or chastising and building his own history and his self up. I think it is that self-reflection and regret. I mean there's seen in the car that you'll know when I say it is just like a perfect encapsulation of that. And I think it's just the the reflection that a lot of us just like go through our lives caring about what we have to care about because that's easy and especially as America and the world has that just like a a history of institutional racism that continues to exist because of the small decisions everyone makes not to stand up for certain things every single day even if it's something that they may see as just, I'm doing this just because it's important for my own survival. There's a selfishness there that I think is reflected in in the character. And I think that's all communicated very effectively. This is like a a self-referential movie that is in no way nostalgia or dripping in like a a sugary sweetness. It does have that coldness at its core. Um, And I think it actually balances out very well and Anthony Hopkins is tremendous. Um I actually really I've seen some criticism here, but I think Jeremy Strong and Anne Hathaway were perfectly suited to kind of the roles that they had to project. I think Jeremy Strong is in anything he does, he's doing it to the nth degree. And I thought I, it don't, actually worked. I
1: don't know. I don't know about Jeremy Strong. Just generally. Like I love Jeremy Strong in succession. I just You I can generally I like I don't think this is something that is now just fueled by uh, whatever that was the New Yorker profile, although it is hard Uh. to shake that entirely. But I I feel like you see him being consumed by whatever he's doing when he's doing. I felt on screen. You're like you can feel the acting. It's not bad acting like he's very good at it, but you you know it's happening like in a way that someone even like. I don't know, like, extreme meta. Daniel A. lewis being the, the go-to example. Like, when Daniel A. lewis really goes into that, you do get lost in it because it's so kind of transportive. Like, yes, I don't, it's extreme, I don't think, but... I don't
2: think it's the New Yorker profile doing that for you. I think it's the Trial of the Chicago 7. Uh, I think that might have ruined ruined him for you going forward if there's anything that could do it i think it's his performance in that movie because while i in my opinion is that like yes you can see the seams but it works in this one In that one it doesn't and you can see the whole marionette uh (laughs) process
1: maybe it is and the whole kind of wigs and glasses element that does kind of carry over into this i do think to your point i think selfish is a really important word to use here i think It's built around a selfish character. It's a selfish film about a selfish culture. But what's telling is centering Anthony Hopkins as the one pure good thing in the middle of the film, because that is the part of it that is made uh, through the eyes of a 50-whatever-year-old director looking back at his life and being like, what is wrong, what is right? What should I have taken from that time? What really needs to jump out of this movie? Because it's the lesson that I now know is the greatest of all that I could have taken there. It's it's what is actually important. That person is what is actually important to shaping me to the place I want to be today. I don't know, maybe like maybe that's too forgiving a reading of the movie. I, I know there would be an argument that we would make for that. I don't think so. Like I I think the movie is just kind of so clearly and outwardly like it's it's not playing it in a way that you're supposed to just have this kind of great wave of sympathy and laugh along and be like, this is my character. And this is, I I think it's intentionally meant to make you be like, I don't like this kid. I don't like this family. I don't like a lot of the toxic kind of ideas and energy that's around this world. Because that feels like part of the point that James Gray is making. And again, I think you got to look at, I mean, look, this cameo came out. I'll, I'll mention it because it like leaked when this first screen of festivals. The movie is on VOD now, Andrew, of course. Um, the Trump family show up and play a pretty prominent role here in the private school that Paul attends. Uh, Jessica Chastain shows up to a speech as Mary Ann Trump, the former president's sister, and uh, John Deal as Fred Trump the former president's father. That is part of his real life. Like, that's part of James Gray's real life. It's not something that he's kind of hack-handedly forcing in here to be like, yeah, you know, I was just thinking about the Trump presidency. So, But I, I do think the overall story and how he's viewing that time, that place, and a lot of the people around them, and I guess where their life takes them and how it progresses is informed by that. Like the, the decision to include the Trump family in the film is certainly tied to a feeling of they are maybe the most exaggerated example of how this kind of environment and this kind of mindset leads you from point A to eventually being in point Z. And I don't mean the white house and that, although that happened to be the case um, in this particular scenario. I, I think it's an interesting movie. I think it's a very, very interesting movie. It's a film that when I saw it, I talk quite a bit about it. I'll watch it again at some point. I don't think I'll be like, God, I love Armageddon time. Can't wait to watch that again next year and the year after that, and the year after that. But I do think James Gray is really, really fascinating. The kind of work he's doing, the types of choices he makes um, when it comes to the projects that he's clearly interested in. I think this is it's unusual you don't see a filmmaker make a film like like generally you hear people oh it's a vanity project <laughs> i think there's nothing vain about this movie it's kind of self-immolating in a way last by in no a means few least, weeks we'll
2: talk about the fablemans
1: <laughs> well i haven't seen that yet um The last one we're going to talk about, I really do think went under the radar. It's on Netflix. It went straight to Netflix. It's been available for a lot of people. I even think in the documentary space with notable people attached, it's been overshadowed by a different documentary, which maybe I'll mention in a minute, but I don't don't think it's quite as good as this one. The film that we're going to talk about is Stutz, which is a documentary directed by Jonah Hill. Um about his therapist dr phil stutz and not just about his therapist and his life and his career but also really about jonah hill and his relationship to his therapist and a lot of the techniques they use to work through things a lot of the conversations they've had over the years and really how all of that works what it all means what they're working towards building achieving together what goes into a relationship like that um i found this movie to be really really special and i remain surprised that it just doesn't really seem like people noticed or cared maybe i shouldn't be because i'm always first to complain about the netflix algorithm and how it will bury things like i see there's this weird b-movie troll which is number one on netflix here certainly i'm sure it's the same in the u.s it seems to be some sort of mini sensation um and from the day that drops that was the top of my feed and i was like netflix i'm not watching this shit like there's no reason for me to watch it i know there's no reason for me to watch it and yet that's what gets served up I'm assuming you knew nothing about this until I told you to watch it because this really, even from like a festival sense, has been super, super under the radar.
2: Uh, I think I knew it was coming, maybe from conversations in the past, or I think from some of the press, trailer, maybe either. I, th- I mean, I think that a, was that was a, a big talking
1: point. Uh,
2: maybe not even the press. Or, or that his, him not doing press anymore I think actually what happened is another algorithm served it up to me uh on YouTube because I w- one day I had watched uh I can't remember if it's GQ or Vanity Fair where like an actor just goes through their career and like talks about major GQ, roles. I think. yeah uh so I watched Jonah Hill's version of that there's we didn't get the cough on cruising for a bruising so now we got on make time for this perfect um I think I got served up the trailer that way around the same time uh you had told me about it and so that was my first experience and then I knew nothing and I I really enjoyed this. I thought it was very very honest and also um try trying not to spoil there there's a bit of dishonesty in it, but it's also I think serves the story really well and really taps into some of the anxieties that Jonah feels feels about his work and just like talking about his work and perfectionism and trying to you know live up to his own very high expectations about himself and how that a lot of it's caused by just how insecure he felt about himself growing up and and now finally starting to try and unpack some of those issues and then obviously there's the, the personal tragedy he's had in his family and then I just love the the way it focuses in on the doctor patient relationship in this way different than we would normally think about it we almost think about it as like your therapist or your doctor which is cold calculating person who is going to come in with a neutral perspective and uh help you work through issues or tell you what you think what to think but in this case it's more of a two-way relationship with two people one person who's you know the expert in this field who's knows these ways that to deal with this anxiety and stress and unpack it in a natural way. And then there's this guy who needs help, but also it's that two way street of like, he's helping me work through things, but also we're forming this deep connection and we care about each other. So it might be an abnormal way to approach therapy, but I think it's just really, I mean, for lack of a better term, they're friends and they mean something to one another. And I think that's really beautiful to watch unfold.
1: Yeah, I've never, never been through any kind of therapy. I've I've no experience of this. It's something that I only kind of get any sort of sense through in a TV and a film kind of way. And I've never, I don't know, I've never responded to it in a in an emotional sense in the way that I I guess this film taps into. Like before now, that that was never something that really landed I'm like okay well i get it i i get why that means so much to a lot of people and not just in a like i do think that is part of what's good about the film too because yeah you're right it's it's jonah hill working through a lot of baggage and kind of issues with a sense of self that he's had throughout most of his life at this and for a long time and it's dealing with personal tragedy too in recent years but there is also just that kind of there are moments of like just day to day and just trying to be the best version of himself um detached from that which kind of really land in an interesting way something i think is important here i think dr phil stutz is an interesting character but he's not like a he's not like an interesting character in a way where if you're Jonah Hill, you sit down for him and you've done a few sessions and you're like, Oh my God, I've got to make a movie about this guy. He's so larger than life and he's incredible and everything. Like it works to the film's favor that he, he is an interesting character. He's got a lot of great ideas. Um, And even the way he approaches his own process, that stuff is fascinating but the fact that he's not like just kind of loud and I don't know off the wall where you're like, yeah, I know why he's making a documentary about this guy informs really as it evolves Well, why it's really being made. You start to understand because yeah, Jonah Hill is making it because he likes this guy. He thinks he's interesting. He's building a relationship, but there is also whether he realized that at the time, there's always a self-serving element in the making of this film, like from a therapeutic standpoint, again, um, there is, we won't get into the specifics of it, but you kind of alluded to it. There are some echoes of one of our favorite pieces of pop culture, I think generally this year, being Dayton Fielder's the rehearsal, not to those extremes, but there are some elements of that that I think people will pick up on. And I I think the film is actually strikingly honest in its dishonesty like when you mentioned there are those moments of it I think it's it's being very sincere in sharing that and in working through that. and you know seeing that version of it before it evolves to be something else I think it's really really clever engaging and touching film and again part of why I'm just kind of a little bit surprised that there hasn't been more noise around this um john hill i i thought mid 90s was really really good i really really liked it. i know it was pretty acclaimed at the time too and it's not like it was kind of a nothing film so on that front i'm a little surprised that this is kind of his follow-up and he spent quite a lot of time but as we see in the making of it it's not getting some more noise it's one of the better documentaries i've seen this year beyond that though like the talent on this film is like serious top end talent so um it's shot by christopher blauvelt who is who did shoot mid 90s but is also i guess most commonly kelly reichert's cinematographer uh cinematographer on first cow on certain women on night moves i'm trying to see is it literally meeks cut off yeah i mean you're going all the way back um worked as a camera operator alongside the late legendary harris evitas so he was a camera op on films like zodiac uh, a single man where the wild things are greenberg i'm still here meeks cut off being the first film he was a cinematographer on like just a really really talented crafts person and then to add to that um a composer who really just kind of seems to be on the rise and who i've paid more and more attention at any time he pops up i'm like oh like that there's definitely there's something there there's something there that's really interesting that's working Uh, emil mazzari you mentioned minari already in this episode he composed the score for minari which was truly truly beautiful one of the best scores of that year Uh, also did the last black man in san francisco score another great one Uh, has scored the upcoming jesse eisenberg movie when you finish saving the world like just really well made doc all around but I think great subject matter Uh it's there, it's on Netflix worldwide for everyone don't think it's got as much spotlight as it deserves but if you like the sound of it please do go and check it out well I do a quick fire where I just essentially mention some other films that may be of interest to people, some recent films that we probably won't talk about at least until maybe some later pods
2: yeah, for sure. I'll mention my one first. A uh, little-known director named Steven Spielberg, uh, The Fablemans, is out I, now. Go I see do it. think
1: we'll probably talk about that whenever I eventually get to see it. I think there's probably a Spielberg pod in our future in the coming months, but I look forward to
2: that. Um. I Wait, wait. I, I told you that bit about my Uber driver who said he was a big film head, and uh, we were talking about Spielberg, and I was talking about just like his ability to not sacrifice artistically while still making like really well-made mainstream stuff uh that performs at the box office not the case for the fablemans i don't think so uh i might have jinxed steven but all he would bring up is amistad I, it, we would just go off in a conversation i'd be talking about like jaws or schindler's list and he was like yeah and amistad and he did it like six times is a really good bit on that guy's part it had like
1: it it did had you, like the hope, like did the you plug sky- the pod? I hope he's
2: listening now and being like, "Yeah, that's me. I'm a guy." Uh, I should have, but um, uh, it had like I've only seen one movie uh, vibes, yeah. and he and he really regretted saying he was an avid film goer, and then he and then he told me the last good thing he saw was Steven Spielberg's West Side Story, and then couldn't stop talking about Amistad. Really good bit on that guy. Love, Love Spielberg.
1: Love Spielberg. Um. Do I only talk about the things I liked recently? That's the question here. Yeah, you know what? That's generally how we carry this pod. Uh, I think some of the things I didn't like will get discussed one way or another down the line. I, I think she said is kind of underrated. I am a sucker for a newspaper movie, for an investigative journalism movie. I think it does all of that really, really well, but I think it's it's pretty well directed, really, really well performed. Um, I don't know what the reason is that people just, again, i respond to that. Zoe Kazan and Carrie Mulligan are both super strong. It feels like something that should have been a bigger movie and I think a lot of people will watch on streaming if it lands on the right streaming service. can't even remember who the distributor is. Universal maybe. Um, so if that means it's going to go to Peacock, it's probably not the right streaming service. But I really like this movie. and I think it's a little bit better than the reputation it's got right from the jump which is kind of just like, yeah, you know, it's fine. Three star movie. I think there's a little bit more to it than that. I think Overall, it's it's kind of executed in a way, and it has a couple of just the absolute standout scenes, Samantha Morton scene in particular. For anyone who's seen it, and um, they'll know exactly what I'm talking about, but the scene with Samantha Morton in the cafe is one of the most just compelling, arresting sequences I've seen in any movie this year. So I think there's some really good stuff there, and it's a film that's probably not getting the attention it deserves because of that. I'm a little bit surprised, given the Harvey Weinstein of it all, given the subject matter, um, I thought that film would be a little bit splashier for better or for worse, but it seems to have come and gone pretty quietly. Andrew, guess what? It's on VOD. Um, what else have I seen that's worth highlighting? We will talk about Glass Onion right around the time it, it drops on Netflix. Um, Andrew didn't get to it in its ridiculous one-week theatrical window and time, like I'm sure a lot of people who probably really wanted to see it in a theater. Ryan Johnson himself has talked about this at Lent already and how he would have liked a lot longer. Um, really, there's a general lack of understanding at why Netflix just didn't decide to put this back in theaters. I mean, the last week has been pretty grim. The pre-avatar, like they could have cleaned up, they did good business on very limited screens. That first movie was a big hit. It's why Netflix bought it. Uh, Reed Hastings has himself already admitted like, yeah, maybe we made a mistake on how short that window was. It's like, what are you doing? What are you doing, Netflix? You buy knives out? Like you buy one of the few non, like, I guess it is IP now, but non kind of established major franchise IP, and you give it a one-week theatrical thing, I mean... I don't know, Andrew. I don't know. You, you could have... You would have got me... I will watch it on Netflix again anyway. But I've also seen it in the theater. I think there's a lot of people like that, particularly when the first film was the kind of hit it was. So... Uh, maybe, I, all I'll say is not as good as I wanted it to be. For me. Fun. Fun time. Good. Enjoyable. I think it does some things that, to me, didn't really work. But very much worth seeing and i think a lot of people have fun over the holidays when it drops on netflix it's certainly very watchable and the other documentary i was alluding to which to be clear i do think is good but i just feel like it's taken up a lot of the energy that could have gone to Stutz. is senior it's a documentary about robert downey senior directed by uh, chris smith i believe and produced by robert downey jr it's a, very, it's a very touching, well-made documentary that is working on multiple levels with Robert Downey Sr., who is a legendary underground filmmaker in his own right, kind of making a film within the film uh, as he deals with his advancing years and ultimately becomes ill. It's him and his son, Robert Downey Jr., trying to reckon with, I guess, what senior's life and the environment that he brought Junior into led to in Junior's life where the relationship is at, how they process all of that now as one one as a grandfather, one as a father, all this kind of stuff. It's a it's a very good documentary. Um, it just didn't it didn't resonate for me in the way that I expected. I feel like it's been overhyped a little in some departments. I think the best documentary race the Oscars is kind of interesting this year, and I'm gonna be curious to see how it shakes out. I think it's pretty wide open and it could be weird. The documentary branch is often weird. Uh, The Eternal Daughter, very, very good entry. The latest entry in the Joanna Hogg cinematic universe, which really I can only frame it like that because that is kind of what this is becoming. I won't give too much more detail uh, to avoid spoilers, but it is a film that, if you've seen the souvenir and the souvenir part 2 you were going to get a whole lot more out of uh because they are not unrelated by by any means i don't know if you even know that yet andrew but, but there you go i didn't no. um yeah it's a it's a ghost story kind of uh, it's uh, it's a ghost story that's all i'll say it's a ghost story um it's not particularly spooky that's not the purpose of this ghost story that's not really what it's about but it's interrogating some interesting mother-daughter ideas that certainly take the root in those last two films Joanna Hogg has released. Uh, Lynch Oz, the David Lynch Wizard of Oz documentary. This is quite fun. This is good. It's not groundbreaking. It's not revolutionary. But um, for anyone who's really into Lynch, for anyone who's really into The Wizard of Oz... A fun look through a lot of the reference points, the influence that film has on his movies in particular. Um, it's a really great documentary that probably no one listening will ever get to see called North Circular, an Irish documentary based on the North Circular road here and the culture of music all across North Circular road. And I guess the soul, the dying soul of Dublin if for some reason somehow it shows up at like a festival or something near you it's worth seeking out strange worlds do you know what strange world is Ah, uh, it rings a bell this is the latest disney movie disney An- animated movie yeah animated correct um i saw this okay. yesterday i think it was yesterday this kind of became a big talking point because it bombed in a way that disney movies never bombed particularly this time of year it's really good. Um, as Disney animated movies have been in recent years, I think it's one of the better ones. Looks great. Very imaginative. Got a very clear, concise, powerful message. I think for older people who are there watching it, you'll be left in no doubt as to what it's about. I think it kind of handles all of that very well. While being a very entertaining film, and that was quite good. And if movies like that are bombing, I don't know, because Disney have trained people to think that they're just going to do day and date on Disney Plus or... That's probably not great. So that's an interesting one. <laughs> White Noise is a film we will be talking about on a later day in the podcast. And maybe a later date in some shape or form, we'll talk about EO as well. um, The Polish film from uh, Jersey Skolomowski. Kind of a a reimagining of Robert Brisson's Ohasar Balthasar. Um a look at humanity through the eyes of a donkey who is through circumstance passed from one owner to another to another to another and we learn a lot about the nature of people by how he's treated in these different settings by how people view animals very very accomplished technical piece of filmmaking really really kind of striking hits you in the chest um very very good would recommend it not necessarily an easy watch not necessarily a fun watch at all times but a really really good film i think that's it we'll talk about some of them in more detail down the line i think white noise and um glass onion or two will have episodes oh there is one other guillermo del toro's pinocchio which is now on netflix it's good very good it was great, I thought, up to a certain point, and it felt like it lost the run of itself a little bit. I think it's a little bit overstuffed a little bit too long. The animation is great, and Del Toro is doing some very interesting stuff in his reimagining of that story. All of the the Mussolini and fascism elements brought in, I think, work very well. Um, some kind of detours laid on that weren't quite as effective for me, but it's very good overall. I think well worth watching. All right, Andrew, I think that's it. We'll uh, we'll see how things go. We'll see what you get to see. We'll see just how your next few days play out. So we won't reveal exactly what's up next, but um, we'll have another movie episode coming very, very soon. We'll have more World Cup pods coming later this week as we continue to cover and prepare to wrap up that tournament. But yeah, plenty, plenty of good movie talk to come in the weeks ahead. Until next time, make sure you subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. That's a make time for this. You should also subscribe to the rest of the GSPN pods for all book stuff. That's the Eurostep Podcast Network feed with the Eurostep and Winning Six. You've got Talk of the Tundra for all things Green Bay Packers. You've got Cruising for a Bruising for all things Milwaukee Brewers. And that's pretty much it. Thanks as always to all of you for listening. Thank you, Andrew.
2: Thanks, Adam.